Welcome to our seminar series, looking at some basic principles and doctrines that we here at Lincoln Baptist believe in. Today, we're going to look at the subject of baptism. Now, before we begin, if you do have any questions that come up from the teaching or anything you want to discuss about baptism itself, please do email in because we would be happy to help you in any way that we can. Now, we cannot really delve into baptism without first looking at the gospel and the truth of its saving grace. So I want you to see three clear things about the gospel before we get to the subject matter of baptism. The first thing I want you to see is the truth of our wickedness, the truth of our wickedness. From the fall in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve broke the covenant, that life and death agreement with God, we are then all tarnished with sin. We know that in Romans 3.23 that the Apostle Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one of us that has not sinned, not one that can match the glory of God, not one of us that can truly be holy. In fact, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 64 verse 6, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Nothing we do is righteous. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And we're reminded of that in Jeremiah 17, 19. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The truth we face as human beings is that we are wicked. We are sinners, willfully doing wrong against God. And if you're in any doubt, J.C. Ryle, a bishop in the late 1800s, said, A sin consists in doing, saying, thinking or imagining anything that is not in the perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. As sinners, we go against God in how we speak, in how we think, how we do things, and even how we imagine. And for that reason, we're told in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The second thing I want you to pick up on is the conviction over our sin. The conviction over our sin. The word conviction comes from the Greek word elenko, which means to convince someone of the truth. When we are met with the truth that we are sinners, that we are unclean, that we fall short of God's glory and are destined for the punishment of death, the Spirit convicts us to convince us of our awfulness, of our situation in our hearts. Isaiah was convicted of his sin in Isaiah 6.5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When he saw God, knew of his holiness, he was convinced of the truth, that his heart was wicked. In other words, in the, the words of a song called Unashamed by Starfield, I have not much to offer you, not near what you deserve, and I know I'm weak, I know I'm unworthy to call upon your name. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher in the 1800s, says this when it came to conviction of his own sin. This day, my God, I hate sin, not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. To be convicted of our sin is not simply to avoid punishment, but to know that in our wrongdoing, we sent Jesus to the cross and we have pained God because he had to send his son to the cross for that rescue plan. It is in this conviction 
that we can so uh, become utterly lost and worthless and depraved in our awfulness, in our wickedness of our hearts. And that is why I need you to see the third thing. That is salvation in Jesus. Salvation in Jesus. Not all is lost. God had a solution to our wickedness and to the conviction of our sin. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God in all of his love and mercy sent Jesus while we were still sinners, while we were still wicked and depraved to die on the cross for us and to set us free so that it, we can, yes it can be true for the wages of sin is death but we can finish that verse and see the second half but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we know we are truly wicked We can approach God through Jesus, repent from our sins, repent from our wickedness, bow before Jesus. And at that moment, we learn that the gospel saves us, that through Jesus and his sacrifice and our repentance through faith, we are saved. And the result is Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A.W. Tozer, pastor in the early 1900s, wrote, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. And that is where we begin today. The gospel of the only way. The gospel of Jesus. The gospel of salvation by faith alone. The gospel not of works. The gospel not of ourselves. And the gospel that saves. And so with the gospel firm in our minds, we can then begin to look at this subject of baptism. And we need not look further than John and Jesus, because we read in a prophesied text of Isaiah 43, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now we read in Mark 1 that that voice in the wilderness was John who would point to Jesus. And in Mark 1, 4 we read, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John's role was to prepare people for the coming kingdom manifested in the coming of Jesus. He did this by preaching the word of God, that message of true repentance that causes a sinner to renounce the wrong in their life and to turn to God in holy living. He also prepared people for the kingdom through baptism. Now, water was used in the Jewish community as means of not just cleaning oneself, but ceremonially cleansing you from sin. And when it comes to baptism, John is not talking about a ceremonial cleansing, rather a whole life, a whole body, a whole heart cleansing of repentance by means of water baptism. Now, the interesting aspect of John's baptism was the most famous of those he baptised, that being Jesus. You see, we're told in 1 John 3, 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. If there's no sin in Jesus, then why would John baptise him for the sake of repentance and forgiveness? Now, the ultimate plan of God was to send Jesus to the cross for the sake of sinners. And in his baptism, Jesus identifies with those sinners. However, we see a a more theologically rounded picture at the very moment that Jesus was baptised. 
At Matthew 3.16, as soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Three distinct elements happening at Jesus' baptism. The first, the giving of the Holy Spirit. The second, that declaration of sonship to the Creator God. And third, the pleasure of the Father that was to commission his Son for his purposes. The thing is, it's the same distinct elements that we have when we are baptised. We are given the Holy Spirit to guide us and aid us and comfort us as we walk with Jesus. We're declared publicly a child of God and we're commissioned to go out into the world and take the gospel to the world. The combination of John and Jesus show us that baptism was more than simply a bit of water and and getting dunked. It had a deep theological and rational significance. We know that John baptised for repentance and forgiveness. We know that Jesus identifies with sinners in baptism. And so the question we now have to ask is why should we be baptised? John did it. Jesus was baptised. Why should we get baptised? Well, the first thing I think we can say is that it's obedience to Jesus to be baptised. Obedience to Jesus. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave us the Great Commission, which was to be obeyed. The Great Commission is our mission to reach people in the name of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The interesting thing to note here is that once we've gone into the world and shared the name of Jesus, as people accept him as personal Lord and Saviour, we are then to baptise them. This is a divine command from Jesus himself. The Apostle Peter backs this command up in Acts 10:48, and he commanded them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. The early Christians believed that it was 100% required of new believers to be baptised. That's why it was commanded by God and that is why the people of God to submit to that command. That command still stands today. Yet it's more than simply obeying a command as we find out in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we're at home or away, make it our aim to please him. You see, baptism is not just about obeying a command so we can just uh, tick it off our list. It's about aiming to please God, because as Christians, we want to do all to the glory and honour of our Saviour. The act of baptism is ultimately expressing that love that we have for Jesus and our desire to please him. In John 15, 14, it says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Baptism is a command. It's a command we are to obey. And when we obey, it pleases God. It's not about legalism, but it's about our love for Jesus with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul. The second reason we are to be baptised is our confession of Jesus. In the book Believe and Be Baptised, written by Victor Jack, baptism is described as an outward sign of an inward faith. Each person's faith is personal and it's yes between themselves and God. However, God didn't just want us to keep it to ourselves. In fact, the Great Commission is all about sharing what the gospel has done in transforming your heart. 
And so the Apostle Paul expresses this in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is baptism, to declare publicly to those witnessing and to all those who ask that not only do you belong to Jesus, not only has he transformed your life, but you are not ashamed to say that you now live in the light of Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Baptism is that outward expression that we now have a relationship with Jesus. And in simple terms, those who are being baptised are ultimately expressing Jesus is Lord, I'm not ashamed to say that I love him, and I want to share the good news with you. The third reason that we should be getting baptised is our dedication to Jesus. Romans 6.13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Becoming a Christian means surrendering your life, your desires and all you have to live for Jesus. It means saying, here I am, Lord, take me and use me for your kingdom's work. Romans 6 teaches us that we are to present our lives to God in a manner that reflects that we have come from darkness and into the light. Baptism is that expression. It is saying that my old ways are gone and now I live for Jesus. So when you come out of that pool of water, you're declaring to all, and most importantly to God, that you live for his kingdom's sake and that you're willing to serve and live for God all the days of your life. Which brings us to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The gospel drives us to identify, yes, as a sinner, but then as saved and forgiven through Jesus Christ. It leads us to obey God and show outwardly our dedication, our commitment, our public identification with Jesus. So we've established what the gospel is. We've established what baptism is in that public declaration of our inward faith. We now need to pose certain questions regarding really the practicalities of baptism, especially within the local church setting, looking at how it should be done, why it should be done, who should be doing it. And as we look at these practicalities, we recognise these are secondary to the two most important things. What is the gospel and why the gospel drives us to baptism? Then we can look at these practical matters. And the first one really is this question, who can baptise? It is often assumed that the person who leads the church, that that pastor or elder, is the only one that can be baptising. Yet there is no verse that explicitly states in the Bible that this is the only individual that's allowed to do the physical baptising of another. Interestingly, both the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself did not make baptising individuals a key element to their ministry. Rather, they sent leaders and disciples to do that baptising. As it says in John 4.2, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. I think it wise, however, in a local church setting, led by pastors, led by church leaders, that those who are in these positions should undertake the baptising of individuals. I say this because it's clear that in the New Testament, church leaders took this role on. 
That doesn't mean that non-church leaders are not allowed to baptise others. It just means that this might be a good practice in a local church setting. Over the years, I've baptised several individuals. And what I tend to do is ask the individual if they have anyone they would like to be in the pool with them. Often it's a family member, sometimes it's a mentor, sometimes it's someone they respect in the church. And that other individual will help me do that baptism. The key importance is that the one baptising must themselves be a believer in Christ, the gospel, that was point number one, and have been baptised themselves. That's point number two, that we should dedicate publicly to the Lord. So the question as to who is maybe less important as to what has gone on in that individual's life. And so as a church leader, I seek to know that they're a believer in Christ and that they themselves have been baptised before they baptise anyone else. The second question that often comes up in a church setting is who should be baptised? Who should be baptised? Mark Dever, a president of Nine Marks Ministry, writes, Someone who, as far as the local church has good reason to believe, desires to follow Christ and who lives consistently with an earnest confession of sin and repentance and a faith in Christ's life, death and resurrection for them. What is interesting about Mark Dever's view is that he goes on to state that these distinct characteristics of a person seeking baptism takes time to become apparent in their life. Essentially, he encourages a, a non-specific period of time to wait and be patient before becoming baptised. In contrast, Michael Green writes that there is no reason to suggest anyone should not be baptised upon their conversion, a, a literal become a Christian and then instantly be baptised. So we have contrasting views out there in various scholars and pastors who are writing. And when you have contrasting views, you need to go back to the Bible and see what the foundational truth that is laid before us. So consider Mark 16 from verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. There's a, a real close link here between believing in the gospel that you have heard and then being baptised upon salvation. So in this passage, arguably, salvation leads into baptism without delay. Consider Acts 8 from verse 12. But when they believed, as Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. The gospel was preached, hearts followed Jesus, baptisms occurred. Consider Acts 8 from verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus as they travelled along the road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. After hearing the gospel and believing in the good news of Jesus, the eunuch was baptised before he had even completed his journey. So with such clear passages indicating no waiting time between salvation and baptism, why does Mark Dever suggest patience? Well, I believe it's got much to do with salvation itself. There can be times where people are caught up in a good feeling about church, who believe in the words of the Bible, but have yet to make that personal commitment to Jesus. It is in this that we are to wait and have patience before we baptise an individual. Because to be baptised, you're basically declaring without a shadow of a doubt that one is a believer and a follower of Jesus. 
You're not doing it to fit into the crowd. You're not doing it to get benefits from the church and you're not doing it so you can be at the front of the church. But you have a deep conviction in your heart that you have been led to Jesus and you have publicly declared faith in him. So salvation, true salvation, that true submission to Christ then leads into baptism, which then leads into a life for Christ. At Romans chapter 10 and from verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's really important for us to see here that before running into baptism, we must first preach the gospel. And if we're going to preach the gospel, then we need to teach it to our church, teach it to the believers in Christ, teach it to the unsaved so they know Jesus, know the gospel, and then we can equip the church to baptise brand new believers in Christ. Now, it's an important question at this stage when we're talking about baptism and who should be baptised is to talk about whether infants should be baptised. Now, no, I'm not talking about children. I'll, I'll come on to that in a moment. I'm talking about infants, those who affirm infant baptism, essentially a baby less than a year old, or what the, the church here in the UK would classify as christening. Now, the verses that those who affirm infant baptism would use is uh, found in Lydia in Acts 16.15. When she and the members of our household were baptised, she invited us to her home. We have the jailer in Acts 16.33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. And then 1 Corinthians 1.16. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. Now, the reason these verses stand out and, and why they're affirmed by those who believe in infant baptism is it includes the word household, that the household was baptised. Yet, crucially, names, ages, number of children, and even whether or not the children were in the household at the time is, is not mentioned. Even more intriguing, though, is this phrasing of household rather than family. This is a time where households would have had slaves and staff living and working in the same place. So these verses themselves do nothing really to add any weight to infant baptism. They just declare that a particular household was baptised. However, I want to be very clear here. Yes, we are saying that these verses don't back up for infant baptism, but that doesn't mean we treat children with disdain. No, rather, we are to imitate Christ as we look at young children. Mark 10 from verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. What we see in the Bible is a pattern of the gospel being preached, faith being established in Jesus, hearts changed, allegiance and identifi identification in Jesus, and then declaration of all of that uh, inward faith publicly and going to baptism without delay. None of this can happen in an infant's life. 
They cannot themselves know transformation with Jesus. They cannot themselves declare publicly their loyalty to Jesus. And therefore, they must be precluded from baptism because they cannot do the steps that would take you to baptism. However, the question comes then, what age should you baptise? Age 5, 8, 10, 13 adults? Who should be baptised and depending on what age? The unfortunate, unfortunate issue here, though, is the debate always focuses on age rather than the declaration of salvation in the name of Jesus. Salvation is the precursor to baptism. If your child, irrespective of age, does not with deep conviction know Jesus, not just as a bit of knowledge, but with complete change of heart, a true salvation, then they cannot be baptised because they haven't had that precursor of meeting Jesus, being gospel transformed in their hearts and now wishing to declare publicly. So it would be wise and prudent to not rush our children to be baptised. Rather, we need to spend time with them so that they can truly grasp the, book, the gospel of Jesus and be led to him, find salvation in him and then be baptised. Let me not dodge the question though. I have baptised someone who was eight, someone who was 11, someone who was 13 and several adults. And in each and every case, there was a deep and compelling faith in Jesus. I spent time with the individuals. I listened to them. I asked them questions and I had no doubt upon their salvation. Age didn't even come into the conversation with these individuals. I also should say that I have not baptised a seven-year-old, a ten-year-old and several adults because I didn't see that gospel transformation in their lives. Yes, they knew the Bible. Yes, they attended church. But ultimately, they were not Christians because they had yet to submit to Jesus as personal Lord and Saviour. And so this is really important as we look to baptism, that no, we don't affirm infant baptism because what we affirm is salvation first and then baptism as a public declaration. In the meantime, what we do do here at Lincoln Baptist is a dedication that we seek the parents to dedicate their child to thank God before at the church publicly for their children and to dedicate to raise them up in a Christ-like home and in a godly home and praying one day they would come to Jesus as personal Lord and Saviour for themselves and then baptism as that public declaration. So when talking about who should be baptised, we must always start with salvation as the precursor. So this then leads me on to my third question. Is testimony essential? Is testimony essential? I often get asked this question, often because people are quite nervous talking at the front of the church. Do I have to stand there? Do I have to be at the front and give my testimony or my faith story? Now, although I don't think it's important as to whether you sit, you stand, you're at the front of the church, you're at the back, whether you're on a video or an audio link, I, I don't think it really matters in terms of format, but I think it's of utmost importance that you share your testimony before people in a setting of baptism. Remember, we have seen that in the book of Believe and Be Baptised, written by Victor Jack, baptism is described as an outward show, an outward sign of an inward faith. Baptism is as much for you as it is for those who are witnessing. You're publicly declaring what has already happened in your life. So it's of utmost importance that you actually share in your own words how Jesus has transformed your life. Psalm 66 verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
It is throughout scripture that Christians are to tell the world what God has done in their lives, to declare to the world that their very souls have been transformed, that they are now all for Jesus. To say baptism is the outworking what God has already done in my life. And surely you would then want to declare that at your baptism. To say to people before, before you as they witness you being baptised why you're doing so. And often it's an incredibly intimate moment as you share how you've been taken from darkness to light. Again, there's no issue whether you read it out, whether it's spoken, whether it's done in a video format or, or whether it's done at the front or back. The key thing is that you're sharing with deep conviction how God has saved you from the sin that once took you away from God. So that is who should get baptised. That is about testimony. What now about how it should be done? How should we physically baptise somebody? Well, we here at Lincoln Baptist Church believe in what's called full immersion. That is entirely lowering before the water and then lifting back up. Now, full immersion, we take from scripture as the, the standard, the godly standard of baptism. Throughout the New Testament, the Greek word for wash, meaning to cleanse oneself ceremonially, is baptizo, which is derived the, the, where we derive the word baptism or baptize from. Baptizo literally means to submerge or immerse. And both of these words indicate an action of dipping entirely into water, being completely covered, and then having the ability to completely come out of that water. It is from this word that we as a church and the majority of Baptist churches establish baptism in a pool with full immersion, completely covered in water. It is important not just to, though to see this as the present norm in our church practice. We also need to see the theological significance behind it. And so that's why we go to Romans 6 and from verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As you're lowered into the water during baptism, it reflects the death of Jesus and therefore the death of our sin. Being lowered into the water is a symbol of that old life being torn down. The sin that once entrapped you has been nailed to the cross and the burden of guilt is now destroyed. The burial of Jesus is represented as we go under the water. The water acts as a grave of sorts, showing us that the old has truly gone. So death to the old life and all sin, and we no longer look back but look forward. And so we then have that final triumphant moment that we are lifted out of the water, signifying that triumphant resurrection of Jesus, showing that we now live for the power and might of Jesus, that we run a new race for Jesus, one that we can live to the full, not dictated by sin, but encouraged by the love of Jesus. Galatians 2.20 sums it up. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, there is opposition to this view, with the favoured approach to those who would uh, disagree to, to sprinkle or to pour over water. Uh, these arguments tend to come from the discussion that the Holy Spirit is poured upon at uh, you in a form of sprinkling in the Old Testament, at uh, verses like Ezekiel 36 and from verse 24. For I will take you away from the among the nations, gather you from the all foreign lands and bring you back to your own land. 
I will sprinkle clean water upon you to cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols I will cleanse you. The issue raised is that God uses the word sprinkling and pour more often the word baptizo. Therefore, the argument would be that baptism should really be done by sprinkling. Now, without arguing lexicons and language structure or whether or not you can prove individuals in the New Testament were fully immersed, let me just simply point you to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus took everything further than the simple statement of law. Do not commit murder became do not even be angry. It was an issue of the heart. Uh, Do not uh, covet another man's wife became don't even think of another man's wife. Don't even look, don't do anything. Jesus elevated it to the next level. And so baptism is the same. Salvation is a whole life cleansing, a whole life change, a whole heart change, a whole soul saving, a whole mind focusing. And so without arguing language and lexicons and theology, what we can see is we've got great evidence for full immersion, taking it from the simple to the elevated level. That simplicity of lowering our lives below the water, death to sin, sin is buried, and then raised with Christ, as we've seen theologically brought to us in Romans. And so that is why we affirm full immersion baptism. Now, before going on to life after baptism, uh, let me just say this. I often get the question as to where we should be baptised. Where where do we do it? Uh, Do we have to do it in the church? Do we do it in a river? Do we do it in a canal? Do we do it in a pool? Where do we do baptism? And I often recommend that it should be done with your church family so that your church family are there to hear your affirmation of belonging to Jesus and they can really cheer you on. But ultimately, I don't think it matters as to where it is. I think it matters as to why you're being baptised. So river, canal, sea, church, baptismal pool, it doesn't matter as to location. It matters as to why you're being baptised. And so what we've looked at is the gospel. We've then looked at baptism and then we've looked at some practicalities in the actual motion and moment of baptism. What we now need to consider is life after baptism. And as we look after baptism, we see that life will be different. It will continue, but it will be different in many ways. And so we go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and from verse 3, as we learn how life will be different for those that are saved in Christ and baptised in his name. 2 Peter 1 and from verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that though them you through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evildoers. For this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.
So what are these attributes or characteristics that we are to grow in? So you, you have come to Christ, you've found salvation in his name, you've been baptised, whether that be in the, the river, the canal, the sea, the church, you've gone through that process, you're now wanting to live your life for Jesus. And we have here seven characteristics or attributes that we are to grow in. The first was virtue, that moral behaviour of the highest standard. Another phrasing could be to pursue excellence in your life. Then we have knowledge. The Greek word here is gnosis, which means the ability to apply practical knowledge, to turn understanding into wisdom for life itself. We then have self-control, literally meaning to get a grip of ourselves. We're to be in control of our passions, not destroying them, but being in control, to have a firm grip of them. The connotation is that we won't be overwhelmed by our passions. We have steadfastness, with some translations saying patience, but really it's more than patience. It's enduring trials for the sake of the kingdom. We have godliness, described as someone who is right with God and right before other people. It depicts somebody that really truly displays a gospel heart. We have brotherly affection, and I love this attribute because it uses the word Philadelphia, that love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a love that puts Jesus at the centre of every relationship. And then seventh, we have love, the love of God which we are saved through, now flowing through us to the rest of mankind. It's more than brotherly affection, it's the desire for others to meet Jesus. And when we are faithful believers in Christ that have now been baptised, we are to pursue these seven attributes. And as we pursue these seven attributes, we are called epinosis or we gain epinosis. And it's from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, but epinosis means perfect knowledge. In other words, our faith in Jesus is made complete when we add with every effort the pursuit of these seven attributes. So as uh, Bible-believing Christians who have been baptised, we now pursue epinosis. It's through this knowledge that our very being is changed and we become more Christ-like. It's through this knowledge that we grow mature as Christians. Moffat, a theologian, would write, The Christian life must not be an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. In other words, we cannot fail to continuously progress in becoming Christ-like in behaviour, in our thoughts, in our very being. If we refuse or in ignorance somehow miss the steps of epinosis, that complete knowledge of Christ in our lives, then Peter lists three things that will happen. We'll be nearsighted, only able to see what's in front of us, not seeing the big picture plan of God. And then we would therefore grow blind. We won't be walking with Christ anymore. Rather, we'll be growing backwards into the darkness we were saved from. And so those who refuse to grow in this knowledge of Christ and to walk in Jesus, once they have come in salvation and been baptised, Peter then lists a third element, that they're in danger of forgetting that they've been cleansed from their former sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We must never forget that we are now a new creation in Christ. We are spurred on to live for Jesus in these seven attributes that declares epinosis in our life. We now live entirely for him as we have remembered that Jesus saved us from the pit of hell and darkness and set us on an eternal road into that heavenly realm. It's quite simple, really. Live for Jesus, walk in the light, and grow towards that perfect knowledge called epinosis. Don't live for Jesus, and you will be in darkness, never understanding the will of God and living in that continual sin. And so we are encouraged, once we have come to Christ and been baptised, to pursue Jesus. 
And when we pursue Jesus, we will not stumble. We will not fall backwards. We'll instead continue in confidence and assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So someone who is maturing in in Christ will not trip up in their spiritual life. Rather, they will readily seek Jesus in all things. I really love how J.C. Ryle encapsulates all of this when he says, The ways and fashions and amusements and recreations of the world have a continually decreasing place in the heart of a growing Christian. He does not condemn them as downright sinful, nor say that those who have anything to do with them are going to hell. He only feels they have a constantly diminishing hold on his own affections and gradually seem smaller and more trifling in his eyes. In simple words, once you've been baptised, live for Jesus, focus on that heavenly realm and slowly but surely this earth will lose its um, popularity, it will lose its, its sparkle to you and you will just want more and more of Jesus and less and less of this world. As we come to a close, what I hope you have seen is that we're all sinners who need Jesus. Upon salvation, through faith in Jesus, we then publicly declare our allegiance to him and our transformation through him. Although, yes, we have to consider some practical matters on how we carry out baptisms, the key thing is why we are being baptised. That genuine belief and deep conviction that Jesus has saved you and you now want to tell the world. Once we found ourselves as gospel-believing Christians, baptism is the next step. We want to declare to the world that you are now in Christ, that your life is holy and pleasing before the Lord, and it's a life that it continues to seek Jesus in all things. I pray that that has been helpful. And if you have any questions about salvation, about baptism, or even want to be baptised, please do get in touch. We would love to help you. For now, let me pray. Father, I thank you for the the wonder of the gospel that is Jesus Christ, who came to this world to save us as your rescue plan from our sins. Father, we praise you that it's not through any effort of our own, but through faith in Jesus by your grace. Father, thank you that there has been so many Christians who have publicly declared their faith through baptism. And Father, we pray that that witness will be clear to the world that really Jesus is everything and he can transform anyone's life. Father, for anyone who has listened or watched, we pray that if they yet to know Jesus as personal Lord and Saviour or to make that step to be baptised, that they would have confidence and assurance in you and can come to you knowing that you love them, knowing that you care for them and knowing that you have a life to the full for them. Father, spur us on to be Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, baptised believers in Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.